Hey, what's up, composer? Tyson Kazare here with the Video Game Composer Podcast, sharing tips, strategies, and stories to help you on your road to becoming a full-time video game music composer. On today's podcast episode, we are interviewing the amazing McLean Deemer. He composed the music for Guild Wars 2 and for the upcoming Salt and Sacrifice, and has worked on a lot of really cool projects. He has a lot of really great wisdom to share with us and experiences and perspectives. It's going to be a really great interview. I had some technical difficulties on my end, so you'll hear that my audio is a little bit extra weird, but the interview must go on. So enjoy this conversation with McLean Deemer. Hey, McLean, how are you doing? Great. How are you? Amazing. Thanks for hopping on and, and doing this interview with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. So I was telling you this before, but I've listened to some interviews that you did with Austin Wintry and Akash the Car. And so I also had some questions I wanted to talk with you about Guild Wars 2 and the expansion End of Dragons, and then also just about your music in general. And I wanted to, I didn't want to repeat too much of what they asked. Um, I really wanted to focus kind of on your process and ask questions more about that, especially like my podcast. I started it to kind of document my journey and my efforts to becoming a full-time video game music composer. So a lot of people that are Mm -hmm. listening are looking to start their career and they've thought about becoming a game composer and they find the podcast and hopefully it influences them to start or as people who have already started and looking to like further things. So, um, yeah, so I just have some questions about process and stuff that yeah, great. I'm excited to ask you about. From your other interviews, I already know some background and so listeners can go and listen to those other interviews because they're super awesome and they're great. But you tell the story about when you were first demoing to be the composer for Guild Wars. Mm-hmm. So you'd already been mm-hmm. doing sound design on Guild Wars. And they kind of gave you this tribal trial period where they gave you a computer and they gave you some samples and you just started learning. And you mentioned how you had some scores in front of you and you were just putting this music together. And I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more and go into a little bit more detail about what that learning process was like and were you were you trying to just really get the composition right at first and then you were trying to figure out the the samples and getting everything to sound right or was the production and the comp- composition ha- happening simultaneously just what kind of was that what was that learning process like yeah um it was uh i haven't thought about this in so long but it, it was like it was chaos at the beginning and it was it was uh if i could go back in in time and and give myself just like if I had 30 seconds of to give myself advice, I probably would have saved myself a lot of frustration because I didn't know I didn't know what I didn't know, right? And um, I didn't study traditional composition or orchestration at all. And you know, this was 2012, so you know, YouTube was around. It's easy to it's easy to kind of find this stuff out, but it was such an overwhelmingly large uh, task before me that I kind of was like, oh, if if I just if I just find a score and then I know how to read music, so if I look at it and then I set up all of these samples, you know, in Logic, which is what I was using at the time, and then I just put the notes in one to one, like, you know, it'll sound exactly the same. No, it doesn't, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it take the samples are, are incredible. Sam, you know, they were incredible back then. They're even more incredible now, but they take a lot of work out of the box to get them to sound. Um, anywhere close to being real, which is almost a whole separate skill. Not even almost. It is a whole separate skill, right. different from composition and, and or traditional composition and orchestration. So I think that if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, the first thing I did was I've always loved um, Holst's The Planets, right? That was mm-hmm. like somebody turned me on to that when I was in college, um, said like, if you like Star Wars, you'll love this, right? And, uh, and I just remember listening to it and, and being like, oh my gosh, like music doesn't have to be, you know, I'd, I'd heard Bach and Beethoven and all that kind of stuff. But when you think of classical music, to me, it's all very robotic, 
very formulaic, right? Not in a bad sense, but it's like literally has such a strict set of rules that what makes these guys geniuses was that they were able to make things interesting within these incredibly limited rule sets that they were dealt uh, as as the sort of standard practice at the time. So I was like, ah, it's, it always feels a little stiff, a little kind of old fashioned. And but then I remember hearing the planets and being like, oh my gosh, you don't have to do that. You can you can tell a story, right? There's still form and thing like things like that that he's playing with. But it's not so much about, you know, pleasant background music for uh, the Viennese emperor, right? It's like uh, this is meant to be listened and and take you on a journey. So, um, so I got that score from the library. I think it was either the library. This is in Seattle, by the way. Any listener, you should go to your public library and see if they have a score section because almost all of them do, and it's it's just there for free, which is amazing. Um, I either got it from the library or I went to imslp.org. I think I had mm. discovered that, which which is basically like the library, except it's just for out of copyright, uh, you know, right. um, scores, right? Words. Yeah, which is honestly almost everything, right? And it's not right. movie scores, obviously, but 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 everything that every movie score in history has drawn from is is something that's out of copyright that you can find on imslp.org. Um, so you should go there. Uh, so I, so I downloaded the score. I think I printed it out, uh, you know, one-sided, which was a mistake. And so I had this like, yeah, okay. So I printed it out using company <laughs> paper. I can confess this 10 years later. Uh, I had this huge stack of paper. And then I just, so I, then I sat down in Logic, opened it up, started inputting the notes. You know, I think it was um, the Jupiter uh, section, which is, has this, starts with this crazy sort of swelling fanfare of, of fast string runs that are all doing something different that create this amazing texture <laughs> and then the horn plays this yeah exactly exactly i was i was trying to wrap my head around what he was doing because it was this pattern they're all playing patterns but they're offset a little bit i'm like why is he doing that and you know real realizing now that it was to just create a textural bed of energy and motion for the horns to play that melody over but it was like it took me hours to just get just to get the first uh, I don't know, whatever it is, four to eight bars until it kind of hits that that first like bump, right? So it goes da 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 I, I gotta re I gotta rethink my approach here because I'll be here for months just putting in this one section of this one suite, you know. Um, and it was at that point where I started to kind of think like, okay, what what am, what am I trying to accomplish here? Because I'm I'm a little overwhelmed. And the the case that I made to the studio, uh, ArenaNet, why they should let me take over the music was that I could hear it in my head, right? So things like melody and harmony, that part was easy, right? I I can I can come up with a little tune. I know how to harmonize it. It was more about how to effectively use all of the sections of the of the orchestra, how to create interest and variety by moving things around and not have everything be so static and not have it be like, okay, cool, you have a cool melody, but the strings are just playing this one simple block chord underneath it with nothing changing, right? Like you just put your hands on the keyboard, hold it down for two bars, and then play another chord. And I thought, oh, okay, right. This is this is how you have to write for this sort of thing. You have to mm -hmm. figure out how to make everybody do either like a support role, a background role, a foreground role, um, or a little bit of both, and have them weave. You know, um, and and how much of that do you want to do? Like somebody like John Williams, of course, is a, is a master of just kind of having everybody doing something interesting and weaving this beautiful basket uh, of of uh, sound together, so that it just kind of sounds like this amazing thing, where. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, also genius and an amazing composer and orchestrator, especially in his later career, he was like, you know, what? it's all about the tune or it's all about this one idea and everything else is just going to support that. So I don't mind having the low brass just play the chord, right? Just just hold on to it, right? And we'll have the strings in octaves playing the melody over top of it and then a counter melody in the horns, whatever. Very simple, uh, effective, and it just works. So I'm like, where do I fit on that spectrum? Well, I should start with the easy stuff. We all want to be John Williams, but we're, none of us are. And even the people who can do that stuff really well—that's its own. That's that's another layer of its own skill set. On top of I'm a com good composer, a good orchestrator, and I can copy John Williams, you know, really well. So 
um, I didn't want to do that. So I, so I started to kind of break things down. I'm like, I need to understand each section. Uh, what, what, to, what is their primary function and when do you need to follow the rules and when do you need to break them? Right. Um, I had to think about, I had this epiphany about orchestration is essentially like mixing, right? Like I come from a pop and rock background and so it's easy to EQ stuff and turn the volume up and down and use compression to just balance things, get things how you want them sitting in the mix. And I understand the frequency spectrum and all that stuff. Orchestration is just a way of doing that without any electronics, right? This very simplified, very simplified take on that. And there's more to it than that. Mm -hmm. But it, that's the basics of it is like what instrument combinations bring out the sound you want? Um, how do you support things? How do you get out of the way of the things that need to, to be heard over the top of everything else? using dynamics, instrument combinations, bowing techniques, all that kind of stuff. And it was when I had that epiphany where I'm like, oh, you're just mixing, you know, but, you, but you're doing it as you're writing it. Uh, was, was, uh, that was when things started to make a little bit more sense for me. So that's kind of how things started. Yeah, it was just like I dove straight into the deep end, realized I was drowning, and then somehow miraculously made my way into the, you know, the kiddie pool and then kind of started from scratch, but it really, it really, it helped that I knew how to read music previously, and it helped that I had in my head some foundation of, of the classical or orchestral repertoire outside of film scores that I liked that I could then study. So things like the planets, um, things like uh, uh, the um, Appalachian Spring, right? Aaron Copeland, I love Aaron Copeland. Things like the Nutcracker. These these are great sort of bread and butter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm pieces to study um, because uh, so much of their what they were doing back then 100 100 200 years ago has been strip mined for what we think of as the Hollywood sound um, and then from there it kind of leads you on to other pieces you might like uh, that that also do that sort of thing like um, Respighi the Pines of Rome is a great one Pini di Roma phenomenal piece especially the finale um, uh, I'm, I'm going to pronounce the, am I going to try to pronounce the German? Um, Strauss, uh, you know, uh, you know, thus spake Zarathustra or uh, uh, however you say that. Let's see. Uh, Strauss, forgive me for Googling on the podcast, but. Uh, no, that's okay. Yeah. I, I need to Google those later. Yeah, ones. they're really good. Uh, Pines of Rome is incredible. I love that. Oh my God. It's, it's. It, it like rocketed to the top of my list when I finally discovered it. Uh, also, Sprach Zara. It's probably in German like Zarathustra or Zarathustra. Um, anyway, it's uh, it's the one that starts two thousand and one, right? That famous like, bum 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 bum, right? Uh, oh, but the whole okay. but the whole piece, you know, that's only like two minutes of the piece. Right, right, the whole right, piece right. is this phenomenal sort of tone poem. Anyway, those those are good starting places, and that's pretty much where I started. And then um, the other. Uh, this is a long answer, so forgive me. Um, from there, I discovered that Hal Leonard publishes, you know, concert versions, concert adaptations of John Williams' music. It's like now nowadays in 2022, there's quite a few film scores in in full that have been printed by companies like uh, Omni Music Publishing and um, Chris. I think it's pronounced Sidall. He's an English guy, mm -hmm. does the same thing. Um, and there's uh, Numation or Noimation is, is a third one that's kind of popped up. So you can get scores to like Back to the Future and The Matrix and Batman, the Danny Elfman scores. Um, what else have I got? Independence Day, The Iron Giant, right? These are all Star Trek, the motion picture, which is like my holy grail. Um, those are all out there now, but 10 years ago they weren't. And so the only option was these John Williams, Hal Leonard pieces, but you could, you know, John Williams, uh, smart guy, um, in addition to being talented, realized that there was value in his music uh, outside of the movies, right? So he would take his film scores and then condense the the highlights into these concert suites. Even back on, you know, if you listen to the original um, 77 soundtrack, I think uh, like Princess Leia's theme is on there. And that's, that's like, you hear that theme throughout the movie, but the version that's on the soundtrack, you never hear, but that's what he performs when he does a concert, or that's what orchestras can license when they perform Star Wars music. So those suites have been published by Hal Leonard, and he every time he puts out a new movie, he, they, they put out an, another sort of collection of them, not just Star Wars, just Indiana Jones and E.T., um, uh, whatever. 
all the famous John Williams scores. So you can find those out there and they're, you know, they're fairly cheap ish, 60, 70, 80 bucks. Um, and so I found those and was just like, again, just kind of staring at them and then thinking like, okay, what can, what can I take from this? I don't want to write like John Williams, but I want, I want to sort of create that same feeling. Um, so, you know, if I, uh, I remember this moment very clearly as well, discovering, I was looking at his scores and there's all sorts of runs, big string runs and violin runs or right. Violin runs, wind, woodwind runs, that kind of stuff. And I was like, why is this, why are these written in seven? Like why, why is it subdivided in seven, right? These crazy septuplets, which again, looking back on it is so easy. And if I had a teacher or if I'd been in a, you know, a traditional conservatory setting, I could have just asked and they would have said, you dummy, it's this. But I had to kind of figure it out myself that, you know, if you subdivide, uh, the, you know, the, uh, run into septuplets that you start on one note. And then by the time you get to the next note, after that you play those seven notes, then you've played an octave. So it's just an octave run, right? And you have to divide it into seven. So you start on one beat, land on the next beat, right? And so, so in our Western tonality uh, system, you have seven notes, you, by the time you get to the eighth note, you've started over again, an octave higher. And it was like this this great aha moment where I'm like, oh, it all makes sense now, right? And just to me, learning is is just trying to make sure that the gap between those aha moments shrinks over time, right? I, I need to have more of those more quickly, and then I will learn more. Um, so yeah, I, I guess, I you know, I hope that answers your question. It's kind of a long answer. But that was what those first few months were like. It was really, it was really feeling adrift, saying, okay, well, let me stop and think, what do I like? Let me see if I can f find some resource to look at what I like and then just stare at it until it starts to make sense. Almost like a puzzle game, right? Where you're like, what on earth am I doing? And then you just kind of wander around, think about it, think about it, maybe get up and, you know, get a snack. And then you're like, wait, I get it. And then you go back and you've solved the puzzle and then you've advanced, you know, another 20% in the game. That's kind of what it felt like to me. Um, and, you know, nowadays, if I'd score, I still study scores all the time. You ha I think you have to. But now now I know what I'm looking for, usually. Uh, and, I, and you know, I'll just go in. It might just be a combination of instruments or a voicing of a certain chord. And it's like I get in, get out, because I know what I'm looking for. Um, but back then, it was, it was intimidating, for sure. I would say, <laughs> again, a piece of advice I would give to myself would maybe be like, don't start with these, like, grand 100-piece orchestra suites that, you know what I mean? Like walk before you can <laughs> yeah like the largest orchestra ever exactly like the planets and walk before you can run you know what i mean that. like start yeah. with some chamber people but but uh, whatever i that's not what gets me excited so maybe that's not the best advice it's like i don't want to listen to chamber music or like i said bach or beethoven it's that stuff's fine and it's great you know uh but not but for what i needed it, it's it wasn't the most useful resource instead of jumping right in like, hey, I'm going to make this demo song, it sounded like you were trying to do a MIDI mock-up of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Were you notating it in? Like, were you putting it into Finale or Sibelius? Or were you putting it straight into the DAW? Uh, straight into the DAW, yeah. Because I, I actually don't think I had uh, Sibelius at that point. Um, and that's, again, that's a whole other skill set. I, I, you know, I can use those programs, but I'm not very fast at them, not like actual professionals are. And then it's like you put all this work in and it looks all pretty and then you hit play and it sounds really bad, you know? I, I knew I knew that um, with Guild Wars up until I had been doing the music for Guild Wars for a couple of years, everything prior to that was all samples. So all the previous composers work, all samples. And then the first two or so years of my music was all samples. So I just kind of knew that it had to sound good coming out of the computer uh, or else, you know, the studio wasn't going to let me do it. Um so yeah, on top of learning orchestration and how to get the ideas out of my head, I had to sort of figure out that technical part of it at the same time. And I would say, honestly, I didn't figure it out. I listened to those first couple years of stuff that I that is in the game now to this day, and it sounds really bad to me. I just didn't know how to use reverb. I didn't know how to balance articulations and try to create some element of realism uh, it's, it doesn't sound great, but it's too late. <laughs> some of the, some of the worst offenders we have replaced with live music. I was like, sneak it into a session later on be like, let's just do this one. And then we'll, you know, put that in the game without telling anybody. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, some of the early stuff is still, is still pretty rough. I would say, um, 
it's just, you know, the samples are a tool and you got to learn how to master that tool. And, and it's an overwhelming, it's an overwhelming prospect. Uh, but I knew that I was going to have to be good at it, at least to some degree to, to fool other people into thinking this guy knows what he's doing. So I know that you went to Berkeley beforehand mm -hmm. and, and we share the same alma mater. Side note, when you were talking about the Hal Leonard thing, I remember toward the end of my stay at Berkeley going in the library and discovering they had like a collection of John Williams, Hal Leonard scores, yeah. like, like Harry Potter stuff. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that has nothing to do with what I was going to ask. Had you had experience with a DAW? Um, I guess you were familiar with mixing, so maybe Pro Tools. Had you done anything like that before or was like orchestrating in a DAW? Not the act of actual orchestrating, but creating music in a DAW. Was that a new thing to you at that point? No, no, I was I was pretty well versed. I mean, okay. at, at when I was at Berkeley, everything was digital performer. This was like, uh, oh yeah, you know, yeah, same same here. Yeah, so I, I you know I'm pretty old um, in relative terms. Uh, so I was there from '99 to 2003, and uh, yeah, they were still on digital performer. And then when I got out of school. Like the first year or two I got out of school, I got approved for a credit card, which is dangerous when you're 21. Um, and the first thing I did was like go to the Apple store and buy a, a Power Mac um, and an, a, a, an expensive monitor, which I still don't understand why that monitor was so expensive back then. Uh, and then <laughs> bought um, a Digi 001, which was like the entryway to using Pro Tools, right? Consumer Consumer level Pro Tools. So I used that. That was all I had for a handful of years and then switched to Logic eventually. Um, was on Logic uh, for quite a while. I mean, up until even when I started at ArenaNet um, in 2010, I, I was using Logic because it was the one I was most familiar with. And then somewhere around 2011 or 2012, we were all using our own separate uh, DAWs and, and computers and some some people were on Windows using Nuendo and some people were on Macs using Logic but we're develop, developing a Windows PC game so it, it just made sense for us to all on the audio team consolidate to the same set of tools so we could share sessions and sh share plugin settings and things like that so at one point we all switched to Windows computers and Nuendo but so that would have been my fourth DAW at that point um, so yeah, I, you know, there's always a learning curve with, with each of them, but they're all basically the same. Um, right, right. you know, so, so that wasn't new to me. Is that what you're using today? Nuendo? I use Cubase, which is, you know, the, 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 the difference between the two of them has, uh, shrunk over the years, but it's, they're all made by Steinberg. Um, Nuendo started off specifically as, a uh, a Cubase was around longer. Cubase has been around since like the eighties. Um, but then Nuendo sort of spun off of that and became, it was, the idea was it's designed specifically for film and TV post-production. So mixing and surround, uh, you know, uh, easy, easy sort of batch exporting of things, um, you know, doing dub mixes for TV shows and movies and stuff. Then, uh, <clears throat> they started to share more and more feature sets over time. There was a thing called the Nuendo expansion kit, which basically puts back in all of these music specific features into Nuendo that they had taken out. So it kind of made it this like super program. But then when I left the studio, I'm a freelancer, right? I still do a lot of work for ArenaNet, but I was on staff and they were buying all my stuff. And then I left to go be a freelancer, had to buy all of my own equipment over again and um, just decided to get Cubase for myself because it is dedicated to music. Um, but I can still open old Nuendo sessions from like 10 years ago, which is amazing. Oh, cool. And, and I would say that here, you know, I live in LA now. Uh, basically, because Hans Zimmer uses Cubase, a lot of people in LA use Cubase. Like, it's very common. Sometimes I'll talk to people and be like, what do you use? And I say Cubase, and they're, and they're shocked. I'm like, we're our weird, you know, we're our sort of weird little bubble uh, media composers where it's just like, it's not weird to use Cubase. It's like fairly normal. And I would say more. it's like probably split equally between Cubase and Logic as the most common DAWs down here. Um and most of the people that come out of Hans's camp uh, are Cubase users. And it, I, I love it. It's a phenomenal program. I don't see any reason to switch anytime soon. I didn't know that there was like a, I don't know if stigma is the right word about Cubase. I didn't know that people are like, oh, what? You use Cubase? I don't, I'm, well, a, I'm a logic guy, but I didn't know that yeah, there was a I thing think, around it. I mean, here's my opinion about this 
debate, if you want to call it that. Um, Apple has Apple ha is their genius, super genius level marketers. Eventually, I sort of shed all of my Apple products. You know, I, I have an iPad somewhere, but I don't use a Mac anymore. I don't have an iPhone anymore. And I was kind of like, oh, you know what? Life goes on. You, you can't exist in this world without without Apple products. But they've sort of dominated the market of like, if you're an, a creative professional or in media, you have to use a, 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 a Mac, right? And and you don't. Um, I've gotten by just fine without, you know, having a Mac for like the last 10 years. Uh, and, and a lot of people I know that do this job ha or have gotten off of it. I just, I can't, here's, okay. <laughs> Sorry, this is a, a sidebar rant slash ramble. No, this is um, great. The only time that I know that a new Mac OS has come out is when every single software developer that I've bought plugins from or instruments from over the years sends me a panicked email with a subject in all caps that says, do not update to OS whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't imagine paying three times as much as it costs me to run my Windows machine, you know, maintenance and upkeep and upgrading and stuff like that, paying three times as much. To, to have a, a company that just breaks everything that I need to work once every 18 months. I, it's To me, it seems like madness. And so once I sort of broke out of that sphere, realized I was saving money and hassle, right? And wasn't so fearful about upgrading um, to the latest OS for, you know, to, because it was going to ruin all of my work. Uh, I, I was much happier. So that, so I, so I stopped using it. And, and I think kind of like I was saying the gap between Nuendo and Cubase has shrunk over the years. The gap between what Windows computers and Macs can do has shrunk. And you can get these super powered PCs that are as good or better. And who cares, you know, who cares about like uh, benchmark tests? I don't care about that stuff. I, I want to just be able to work. And, uh, and I don't want the company that I'm paying all this money to, to break my, my stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it's funny you bring this up because it's something that's been on my mind a ton because I have a 2015 Mac mm -hmm. and they just put out their new, like you're probably getting the emails or should be soon. Like they just put out a new operating system and um, this year. And anyway, my Mac isn't supported anymore as of like the end of October. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, am I going to stick with Mac? Do I make the jump to Windows? Do I stay on Mac? What am I going to do? Yeah. I, I don't need to, you know, bore the listeners with my my going back and forth and my different things. But but I'm glad you brought that up because that's been on my mind a lot. Yeah. I, I guess the only piece of advice I would say is is get whatever, you know, when you're, especially when you're starting out, specifically geared towards listeners that might be thinking about this. Don't don't buy into marketing hype and and find tools that work for you. And so I, what I would do is get a, a cheap laptop or PC, and and I, honestly I would get Reaper. Um, I've I've used Reaper a little bit when it first came out and it was great and it's only gotten better and it's shocking how cheap it is. Um, and if I was just starting out and only had five hundred bucks to spend, you know, or a thousand bucks to spend on both a computer and software, uh, that's what I would do. Yeah. Yeah, Reaper is a great way to go. So I'm in Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. and I feel like I'm the only guy out here or the only person out here that's on Logic. Seems like most people are in Reaper. And these are people that are working on like big AAA games and everything. It's not like, oh, it's just this cheesy $60 program for starting out even. Like these are top pros yeah. that are using Reaper. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and, and it only gets better every year. I, I tried, you know... I tried making the switch once and, and I've used it for recording audio. It's great. But, but the way I just have the way I like to have my instruments set up in contact and everything, it, I would have to do that completely differently. And I, I wasn't willing to kind of make that switch. I, I've kind of got things dialed in fairly well in Cubase, but, uh, yeah. anyway, tech talk. Yeah. Tech talk. <laughs> um, so I have, I have a Guild Wars question for you. Yeah. So you gave this awesome talk at GDC about the music for Guild Wars, for the expansion, End of Dragons. You told the story about, I don't remember if it was in an interview or in the, it's probably in the actual talk, but you told the story about when they decided to do the the Korean thing. Like, mm -hmm. we, okay, we want, we have this city, I don't remember what the city is called, but we have the city and we want this kind of music in it. And so you went 
and I, I'm probably butchering the story, but you went and you made a demo piece. You showed it to the board or whoever, and they had these different like Korean consultants or whoever in the room. And you thought it was pretty good. Like, okay, I'm excited to show this to them. And they basically reacted like, you totally missed the mark. We're going for total authenticity, not a nod to the hat toward general Asian culture. And so then that got you started on this whole new approach and this deep dive into Korean music. Is that is that a good enough summary? Does that sound accurate? Yeah. Uh, yes, go on. <laughs> okay, so what I wanted to ask is that led to this new approach, right? You're approaching, you're really studying Asian music really deeply and you can talk or about Korean music really deeply and you can talk about the different instruments that are used and the, the scales that are used and the compositional technique compositional techniques and how all those ideas are what you use to create the score all throughout and it's very interesting and fascinating um so i just wanted to know if in doing projects since like salt and sacrifice and other things that you're working on have you adopted any of those kind of approaches has working on on the end of dragon's expansion changed how you approach projects since that uh yeah good question so um not specifically for salt and sacrifice because it's just a you know fantasy world and, and uh we're not trying to kind of replicate like there's electric guitars and there's distortion and there's all sorts of weird stuff happening in there so it you know that was more just like match the musical aesthetic to what you're seeing visually. Um, and now I'm about to finish up a game called Firmament, which is made by this um, studio called Cyan, who uh, in the 90s made Mist and Riven and all those games. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's a similar one where I'm kind of I'm kind of left to my own devices to just interpret what I'm seeing on, on screen musically. Um, and it doesn't sound anything like Guild Wars. But I am, you know... This is the sort of reality of this job is like, I might pitch on something, maybe I shouldn't even talk about it, but it, I, I can't say what it would be, or if I'll even get it, or if I'm even going to get the opportunity to pitch on it, but I'm sort of mentally preparing for something that is going to draw from Indian music, right? And so that is, a, a, again, another just massive can of worms that I, that I don't have much understanding of not being of Indian descent. Um so I'm so I'm trying to approach studying that similarly, right? Of, of like really doing it right, really making sure that I understand the instruments and the different regions and different traditions, because India is a massive country with a with an incredibly rich and and long history of its own. Um, and you know, it, again, w like with the Guild Wars stuff and and Korean music specifically, it was a fine line where we weren't. The game is not a video game version of ancient Korea, right? So. Uh, it doesn't have to just recreate this stuff. I don't have to feel like write authentic sounding folk songs in this sort of tradition, but it had to, if someone who knew that music heard the Guild Wars soundtrack, they had to immediately think, aha, this sounds Korean to me, right? Which is what, which is what was lacking from that original demo. Um, there was just nothing particularly Korean about it. Um, it was just that generic Hollywood Asia sound uh, that we were trying to avoid and that I failed to avoid in that first pass. Uh, <laughs> And so for this other project that I'm studying for, um, again, it's not like, okay, we're going back to some part of India and we have to authentically recreate the music of that era from that region. But they want to adhere really closely as much as they can while creating a modern score for a franchise, you know, in 2022. Um, but, you know, honestly, it's like some people might say, oh, but that's, uh, this is not the approach I have. I'm, I'm, I'm making up. A, a straw man here but there but some people might think well that's like hampering my creativity i want if they can just play these notes then i want to be able to do whatever i want with that sound um and you know it, i would say that indian instruments are, are much more flexible than a lot of the kind of pentatonic based stuff or or uh there's the scale that we were working with in with in the korean stuff was incredibly limited um but I, so then you have to figure out how do you, you know, they're limited in terms of how many notes you get, but that limitless in terms of expression. So, so that's, that's the angle you have to approach it from is like, it's more about the expression than it is about, you know, a flurry of notes um, that are going to dazzle people. So in Indian music, there's more, uh, gosh, I hate to make this comparison because it's, somebody could ding me for it, but it's like, 
I would say they're slightly more flexible. They can play a little bit more, right? Um, in terms of their t their approach to tonality, um, and then they do really interesting things with you know their their scales are called ragas, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they uh, you know certain moods. It's like the raga is has has these notes going up, but it only but it has these notes going down. Or if you approach this note from this direction, you you add this little embellishment, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. This is like the highest highest level broad stroke of describing uh, Indian music, Indian classical music. So, you know, I'm still kind of embarking on that journey, um, but I'm finding that I, I, I love it. And, and I'm finding that studying, you know, I'm two for two in terms of finding a, a culture's music that just tickles some center of my brain, you know, that, that uh, I, I've said this before in various talks or podcasts where like, I know how to write for an orchestra. I know how to write a lot of different kinds of music, but I can write for an orchestra. And typically when you're doing media stuff with, for an orchestra, it's just that people just want to dazzle. They want to, they want to be really technical and virtuosic and impressive. And all that stuff is very cool. Love all that stuff. Love listening to it, you know, and sometimes I'll get an idea and say, I wonder if they can pull this off and they can. But going back to what I was saying before about John Williams creating this incredibly intricate woven basket of, of, of you know, idiomatic but virtuosic parts for every single section of the orchestra. That's just not really what comes naturally to me, or that's not what gets me so excited that I want to keep working hard on a piece of music. I like simple things and simple ideas, and, um, you know, like with the Indian music specifically, obviously, the one thing we probably all know is that it's all very drone-based. It's just like, there's literally just a drone... And then it's all about improvisation using these ragas, you know, and and the traditions around them and the instruments that are that are being used over top of that. And I love that like a lot. Uh, and and I'd heard that music, but again, only only kind of in passing, not really doing a deep dive on it. But now that I'm studying it more, I'm 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 finding that it's like exciting. And I'm like, wow, what what can I learn from this? What can I take out out of this? tradition into, you know, me playing guitar or something like that, or me doing a synth thing over a drone, or even honestly, you know, applying that to Western instruments. And even that's something that, that they did, right? Like there's, there's a tradition that they've, they have of violin playing because, you know, the sort of unfortunate reality of, of, of our world is that they spent a long time under colonial uh, rule from the English. Mm -hmm. And so there was some Western influence that bled in there, but they took it and they, you know, mixed it all up with what they had already been doing. And they have this totally unique approach to playing the violin that I love. So that kind of stuff gets me excited. So yeah, like I said, I'm sort of two for two of finding these interesting cultures that are like, oh, this is what I like about music and what I like about writing music. Um, and I, you know, I should pull on that thread a little longer and see see what I can get out of it. And if if I become the guy who like, you know, goes around studying. Uh, traditional music from all these different global cultures and, and not the guy who is going to impress people in the Western orchestral tradition, fine. You know, I don't care. It's, it's, it, I, it's, if I'm happy making music and feel challenged and energized by it, then that's, uh, that's enough for me. I don't need, I don't need the sort of adulation of, uh, of academic professors at conservatories or, uh, you know, my peers in that regard, right? We all, we all love approval, but I just realized I'm not. I'm sort of tapping out of that race. I'm not going to dazzle anyone with my, my brilliant chops uh, with the orchestra. With your John Williams chops. Yeah, just you know, there's other people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's John Williams is still around. Very lucky to have him still writing music. And there's other people that do that really, really well. And and I'm not one of them. And I'm I'm totally fine with that. I hope you get the gig, and I'd love to hear what you do with it. Yeah, we'll see. Down the road. Thanks. There's there's many many steps and many things that are out of my control but that's true of every job. So, you know, we'll see. maybe in five years, you'll be like, ah, I had the scoop on my podcast that he got the gig. <laughs> and, and it's a really fascinating idea where Indian classical music is so improvisation based. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is so wonderful about being a game composer is the idea of adaptive music. Yeah. And so that idea of like improvisation, it's just, it's an intriguing, it, anyway, it's cool. Uh, I have a couple more questions for you, if that's cool. Yeah, of course. But I know that you don't like to write battle music. <laughs> and so as you've as you've hired out people to to write like battle music for you on Guild Wars, as you've had people with you on a team, how what was the process like taking all that you learned and the deep dive that you did and and distilling that knowledge to others and kind of helping others to get that right. Was that a difficult process? What was that? Yeah. How did you do that? What was that like? Yeah. Um, not super difficult, at least for, 
uh, End of Dragons. So part of it was the first person I found, uh, the, the Andy Roseland is this other composer who, uh, through asking around to various people to try to find an expert on Korean music that, that you know, I could talk to, um, he was the person that I eventually discovered, which I'm very glad I did because he's incredible. He's an American, but he's lived in Seoul for the last 30 years uh, and studied both traditional uh, Western composition and Korean uh, traditional music. So he was this incredible unicorn. Uh, and and I was my original pitch to him was, um, can you come on board and, and write combat music, right? Because I want to I want to incorporate these interesting traditional Korean rhythms and rhythmic structures that I only have a very vague grasp on. I, you know, I still have trouble deciphering them when I listen to some of this music because there's a lot of embellishment and it's it's sort of complex subdivisions that I can't quite wrap my brain around. So because he knew all this stuff, I was like, can you write something? Because I want I, the Korean, traditional Korean percussion music is so interesting. It has so much energy, and that's what combat music needs. And we just sort of rely maybe a little too much on giant drums banging away in combat music and action music over here in the West. I was like, well, if we have to, if we have to have that stuff, let's have the Korean version of it. And you know what that is. So can you write some combat music for me? And he did an amazing job, but we just needed more. Like we needed a, a lot more. So with Andy, he I, he was kind of left to his own devices, and he would send me stuff, and it would be like version one. I'm like, yep, that sounds great. I have I have no notes. Like, who am I to tell you that this is not right? But then when we needed someone to help out uh, and write even more combat music, kind of at the very end of the project, um, we brought on Brian Atkinson, who had written some uh, Guild Wars stuff previously, um, and like more in that traditional sort of Guild Wars 2 fantasy orchestra vein. But he's he's good at writing action music and combat music. So we brought him on. And then I had, uh, by the time he came on, I had, I had sort of refined this. I had like a two-page document that was basically a, a distillation of everything that I had learned in the, in the two years previous studying Korean music with links and, you know, phonetic spellings of some of these words and how to pronounce them. And I was like, all right, read this look at these links and do do your best and then we'll talk about it and we'll and we'll refine it you know as we need to so he went off and kind of um some of his pieces took a little bit uh took a little bit of refining and, and revisions which is just the way things go sometimes so he would send me a piece and and it would have some interesting parts happening um but then i would hear something weird like you know like a uh, whatever is you know, music speak for hopefully people know what I'm talking about, but like a, a flat two to resolving to the one, right? So like mm -hmm. not right. something you hear in Korean music at all, at least in my experience. Um, and and in, in terms of how much time you have to convince the people who are listening to it and hearing it for the first time, this is Korean. Well, when you hear that kind of thing, especially if you're thinking along stereotypical lines, you're going to think of Middle Eastern music uh, or Indian music, right? Which what I'm learning uh, to tie into what I was talking about with Indian music is that a lot of that music, the influence of Indian music comes actually from uh, Persians that kind of made their way over to the subcontinent and influenced their music a little bit. So that flat two thing going down to the one is just so ingrained in our brains as this kind of Arabic sound um, or Indian sound that I, I just hearing in that context is like, nah, you gotta, you gotta change this. This isn't going to work. So um, yeah, so it was, it, you know, it was a process of trust and saying, well, I trust your musical ability and I trust your ability to get up to speed. Let me save you some time. And here's some bullet points of like really important things to know and uh, to get a sound in your head. And then it's still going to sort of pass through me as quality control. Um, and even sometimes I'd send stuff to Andy as well uh, to get his take on it. Like, is this in a key that's playable on some of these instruments, right? Because some of them are more flexible than others. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that went for that particular project. I've heard you talk about battle music multiple times mm -hmm. and about how you hate writing it, but I don't, I want to know the story. Like what's, what's the deal with battle music? Well, okay. This always gets me into trouble because the sort of the most vocal online video game soundtrack fans, this is a very broad category, but they love, they just love epic music. And I say that with finger quotes, right? So that I find that stuff exhausting to listen to, right? I find trailer music exhausting to listen to. I get its function, um, 
but it's just it's so dense and so relentless and and so formulaic that it's like not that interesting to me but people love it right because it just kind of immediately stirs emotions and makes you excited about a movie that's coming out or whatever and that's sort of one side of things the other side of things is just like yeah epic combat music and it's just loud 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 and and I don't want to you know say any names because I'm sure these people are nice people but there's there's three or four sort of there's three or four sort of names or groups of composers that get tossed around and it just there's just just a component of the online game music community that loves that stuff and I'm not one of them right so so when I sit down to write it it's a necessary evil for games because you get into fights all the time so I think about it less from an aesthetic standpoint and more of a functional standpoint so when you're in a game What's the function of combat music? Uh, here's an okay. Before I get into that, here's a name I will name. So uh, John Williams, love John Williams. However, the scores to the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, not my favorite scores. I love some of the suites on there, but I find that he de- he sort of. I think it that was his peak in terms of of how like intricate and sort of almost like muscular, for lack of a better term, his writing was, but. At the expense of what I love about him, which is his textures and melodies, they sort of fall by the wayside. He kind of deconstructed what he had done in the original three movies in a way that made them less interesting to me. Um, and and there's a lot of just fighting and fighting and fighting, and there's so much action music. And it's fine, but like across three movies, it's just exhausting. There's no, there's no there's nothing to latch on to. Like I could hear the music for the battle of on Hoth. Or I can hear the music for the Tie Fighter attack in the in A New Hope, and I immediately know what those scenes are, and maybe that part of that's familiarity. But if you A B them with the prequel music, he doesn't he doesn't shy away from melodic content and 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 uh, only having uh, the what's necessary be playing in the original movies versus the prequels, which just feels like more is more. And to me, it's exhausting to listen to, and I and I, and then I just tune it out. It, it all becomes noise, despite how impressive it is technically, and his chops, which are unbelievable. To me, it's just white noise. So I, I don't. I, I almost never listen to the prequel scores, um, despite how technically well they're played and recorded. And that's like you know, that's we're talking John Williams here. There's like that's the king, uh, and and there's a whole segment of his music I, I don't find very interesting to listen to. When I'm doing this or when I'm playing a game. Like I said, I think about it in terms of its functionality. So in a game, when you're in a fight, you want to change the mood from exploration music or puzzle solving or ambience or whatever it is to building tension and sustaining it. The music, that's its primary function. Its secondary function is to be interesting music, but it doesn't have to be, right? That gap between its primary and secondary function can be pretty wide. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a nice to have when the the interestingness of it it equals its effectiveness as attention builder and sustainer. Specifically for Guild Wars, uh, you're in these fights and you you know you need to sort of set the mood for them. But this is an MMO, which means you're playing it with a lot of other people usually. So what happens when you're playing a game online with a lot of other people? You want to be talking to them. So now all of a sudden, the primary function is get out of the way of people talking, right? Like they might they might even turn not only the music, but all of the sound off. So writing something that's as complex as some piece of trailer music or some sort of John Williams prequely thing is so much work because of the tempo, the crazy sort of uh, acrobatics you have to do, both like with the harmony and, and time signatures and all this stuff, these techniques that are used to write this kind of music. It takes so much time to do that kind of, mu- to do that kind of music. It's just, that's just a fact, even for the top people. And then to have someone just turn it down is like, honestly, what is the point? What's the point of doing it? So what's the bare minimum that I need to get in there? All right, here's some drums and here's some strings just going like, do, 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 you know, that's fine. And it's it's boring to listen to in isolation, but I don't care about that. I care about its function within the game, right? So so that's kind of a, you know, a long-winded way of saying, I don't find it interesting to listen to, therefore I don't enjoy writing it. And it takes me longer to do a task that is already very time-consuming, and then the ultimate purpose of it is not to be listened to, it's to be felt, and in this game in particular, the, all that could get thrown out the window because it's a, it's more about communication between guild members or people trying to do a fight together. So if that's the case, I don't want to do it, <laughs> right? It's like, get it at, get it off my plate. I have other things that I find much more interesting that I know I will do a better job at. But I, but you know, I talk to people, and and I'm I'm not alone in this regard. I I, I do know other people that are like, yeah, writing combat music sucks. Um, 
but there's some people that that's all they like to do. All they want to do is sort of impress people with how big and and over the top and intense their writing can be. And good, I I will I will hire them to help me out in the future. So I think there's more than enough room at the table for people to do this. But that's my general philosophy on combat music. It's just to me, it's it's so over the top that it becomes boring. There's just there's no subtlety. There's no exploration of uh, of sim- simplicity uh, or or interesting ideas that appeal to me specifically. Um, so there you go. That's my opinion. Are there any games that you like? Like you like the combat music? You feel like the combat combat music was done really well and it speaks to you? Uh. Yeah, I mean, maybe The Last of Us has some great, some great stuff. But again, all percussion. It's like not super over the top, thousand piece orchestra, thousand piece choir, doubled with samples and tripled with synths, and you know, it's not that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, it's like I don't think about it. It, it I just tune it out. I, I know that it's there, but in general, I just don't really give it the time of day. <laughs> like when I, when I'm playing a game and, and, and my ears perk up and I start listening to the music, it's never because of the combat music. Cool. Thanks for, thanks for elaborating on that. I've been curious cause I've heard you say it multiple times. So I'm like, what's the story there? Yeah. Okay. One final question as you, especially as you've progressed in your career and you're more of a veteran in the industry and you have big titles under your belt. And I'm sure that you meet lots of people and you hear a lot of more up and coming composers or aspiring composers. Are there big differences you're hearing between your peers and people that are making it in the industry? Or like you mentioned, Brian Atkinson, who um, has helped you out with Guild Wars battle music stuff. And then people on the other side of the chasm that are just kind of still getting their stuff together and still trying to get work. Are there things that you're hearing musically like, oh, in general, people's composition chops are good, but I'm hearing really weak production or production is really great, but I'm hearing weak composition chops. Or do you have any general observations like that, that you could point out or, or pass on to uh, any relevant listeners? Yeah. Um, I want to be careful here because I don't want to insult anybody's music in particular or entire communities. Um, but I do. And, and I also have to be careful because, you know, I don't, I get sent stuff or tweets sort of come across my my Twitter feed. Rest in peace, Twitter, potentially, <laughs> depending on what <laughs> happens in the next couple of weeks. Um, but things, you know, things will bubble up in isolation and, and uh, in sort of little micro communities here and there across the internet, and um, and sometimes it comes across my my path. And uh, you know, I don't ever want to. This is the tricky thing when you're sort of doing it and people start sending you stuff. I don't want to be accused of stealing anybody's ideas or sounds or whatever right it's there's uh some of that's inevitable but but it gets tricky so and i don't want to insult anybody because i think that it's important making music is amazing and i want everybody who makes music to be successful at it um but there are times where i hear things you know occasionally uh where yeah it's that the production chops aren't there and you're and you're just not going to impress anybody if it, it and and that unfortunately is um this sort of catch 22 where you need you need to a little bit of money or a lot of bit of money to get the best tools to compete with other people and to 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 convince people that you're you know going to do a good job because like sort of stock sound like what comes with um native instruments complete or what comes you know built into Sibelius it's just it's just not going to cut it and and unfortunately most people can't listen through that to hear how good the music is going to be if you were to do it live because you might not get that opportunity so if this is all you are capable of I'm sorry but somebody else can do this better right um, so yeah sometimes I hear a production level that's not really professional or up to up to snuff sometimes I I, I will hear you know somebody will have good production chops but really lacks focus from a compositional standpoint, there's just like, there's no, I, I, you know, again, this is a tricky balance to, or a tightrope to walk of like formulas exist for a reason. And, and you want to say, well, I'm not, I'm not a formulaic composer. I, I do things this way. Well, okay. But you're sort of breaking so many rules at once that it's just the whole thing lacks focus and therefore is not interesting. So there's good and bad sides to sticking with forms and sticking with things that work and finding your spots to say, I'm going to do things a little bit differently here. 
Um, sometimes there's a lack of, you know, there's, there's ambition to create something musically or tech technically interesting on a musical level, like with the harmony and things like that, but, but mm, falls a little short of the mark and you're like, ah, it's kind of a weird choice, you know? And again, I don't think you should be locked into the rules of music theory because they're not rules, right? Music theory is, is, um, what do they say? It's like, it, it's like descriptive. It's not prescriptive, right? So it's like you apply music theory yeah. afterwards and sometimes it's a toolkit that you can draw from, but I don't think it's a good place to start from when you're composing. You should compose from inspiration and, and then put the music theory on as needed. Um, and I find that I've been doing this for so long that like, I'll just throw things out completely out and say, well, who cares if I modulate from this chord to that chord or, you know, I'll find some justification for it in my brain, but it's usually rooted in some element of music theory. Um, but yeah, so sometimes I'll hear people that just kind of, it just, whether or not there's a justification for it or not, just in the moment, it sounds like they don't know what they're doing. Um, and again, you know, like I said at the beginning of this, I listened to some stuff that that made it into Guild Wars and like, this is bad. You know, this is not up to the quality level that I would do now or even five years ago, but 10 years ago, it was all I was capable of. So this is not to say like, give up kid and you know I don't want to be I don't want to say that I want to encourage everyone to just push themselves and be a little bit better um because that's what I do right and and another thing that I've sort of realized as a veteran now is that it doesn't get any easier right so I, you know people look at me and say hey you've been doing Guild Wars for forever you're doing this game you're doing that game and in my mind all of my best work is ahead of me I still feel like I haven't even gotten started you know despite now having a career being in games for 14 years writing music for 10. I have so much more that I would like to accomplish and so many other goals that still some of them feel pretty far out of reach. Um, so, and, and, and what happens when you become successful, quote unquote, is now you're competing with everybody else who's successful. So there's the competition level only raises as you get more stuff under your belt. Nothing, nothing gets handed to me. I, you know, I, I would love it if people, I would love it if my email inbox was just filled with offers to work on AAA titles every day. And I had to say, no, sorry, I'm working on three other AAA titles, but I'm not, you know, I'm still, I'm still struggling to get every new project that, that comes my way. And I think that's true, generally speaking, for almost everybody that, that does this. Um, you might get asked to pitch on more things, but that doesn't mean you're going to get the job, right? So you kind of always have to be working to get better at what you do. Um, and, uh, and you know, whether that's finding a niche or creating your own niche or whatever, whatever that means for you, you, you kind of have to spend every day getting a little bit better, um, even once you're, you're doing it and, and making a living at it. Otherwise, it can all just sort of go away. Uh, so, yeah, that would, that would be my advice is, like, be honest with yourself. I think it's important to surround yourself with, with a supportive community. But don't don't get lost in that. Like I, I see a lot of beginners be almost like uh, this is so tricky, man. And I hope people t don't take this the wrong way. But there's this term that's gotten thrown around. I've seen you know over the last couple of years uh, of called toxic positivity. And I do think that this idea of like being supportive, no matter what, no matter what the scenario is, just so that you don't you know destroy someone's dreams or hurt their feelings or whatever it is that can have an unintended detrimental effect that doesn't allow them to grow in a certain way and i'm not trying to come at this from the perspective of like an older dude saying like back in my day we had it so hard and people would you know i don't i don't i don't believe in that at all i do believe in 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 fostering positivity and encouragement in people but i do think you can get um a little bit lost in in the fog of everybody telling you this is so great when maybe it isn't that great and you should be honest with yourself. Right. And so I had those moments again to bring it back to me, those first couple of years of guild wars things, you know, I'd see a lot of comments being like, wow, this is so cool. Uh, this, I love this piece. I love that piece. And in my head, and this is a bad, this is maybe a bad thing. I'm like just scanning comments on YouTube or Reddit or whatever. And then someone say, yeah, it's not that it's actually not that great. Or it's not as good as this other thing or, it kind of just doesn't, you know what I mean? Like you look for the negative comment and you say, oh my God, they, they did, they found me out. They've discovered that I'm a total fraud. <laughs> um, and you can, you can totally spin out as a result of that. But for me, that was like, it was, it's always rough to see. And I still see it now, honestly, after I've been doing this for, for a long time, I still see people say things that, that, uh, you know, are, are not so kind to my, about my music. Um, but I've sort of, I'm like, all right, well, I've been doing it this long. I'm confident enough. I know what I do and I know that it's good. 
Uh, and if it's not going to please everybody, that's fine. But in the early days, I would take those comments to heart and it would maybe ruin the rest of my day, you know, but uh, but but it would mean that the next day I'd have to like come back to it and just say, OK, well, if, if it's bad, then make it better. I know that I I know that I can make it better. So on the next thing, I will take that when I get to that moment where I'm like last time on the last piece I was working on. I was like, I'm not so sure about this. And then you put it out there and somebody says, yeah, this isn't that great. Okay, well, when you hit that that speed bump on this next piece, make it make it better, right? See, see what you can do, work a little harder. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? It, it, it's- uh, Yeah, that was, that was great. That was awesome. And I guess speaking to when you brought up like the false positivity and stuff, I guess it's really down to how you view it too, because I know when I get- feedback on something that I'm working on. I really love it when I hear, okay, here's what's going on. It sounds like maybe you don't have things set up right in your room because there was this funny thing happening in, in the in the EQ or on this range and or or whatever it is. It's it's like, ah, oh, it's maybe it's discouraging because it's like, oh my music's not where I want it to be. But I also know like, oh, that was really great feedback on why it was so great. And I can get to work making it better. And so in the long run, that's very positive because like you were saying, your music gets better. It's like, okay, I have stuff to work on and the music gets better. So I guess that's my way of spinning it. Like even if someone comes down hard on your music, you know, if you reach out to a mentor or whatever and they find all these problems, it's like, well, that's a positive because now you have stuff to work on and you're improving and you're becoming better. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the way to frame it is to say if you, if you're, if if you're in a situation where you're asked for feedback and you think, okay, well, <clears throat> I have to be honest here, you know, it should be framed in such a way that it's not like you suck, everything you're doing sucks, you're not cut out for this. And there's a school of thought, the sort of old school, that is a very old school mentality of just like right. drop drop the hammer on people. Um, <clears throat> and to me, that's not very, that's not healthy, but I do, but I don't think the absence of criticism is healthy either. I guess that's my ultimate point. Right. Um, and right. so it has to be encouraging, right. And, and maybe give some options of what they could do. Like I, um, I had a piece that I still use for demos, uh, that I, it was a personal piece that I'd written. It's just like, I was, I, it ha I, I, I thought of it, I was sitting, I was like in a, in the bathtub and I was just staring at the ceiling and all of a sudden this melody came to me. Right. And it's like, that never happens. So then I wrote this piece very happy with it. I like it. I would love to do more stuff in this vein. It's on my website. It's called Sister Rabbit and uh, very proud of it. Sort of a light, sort of pretty tune kind of thing. Anyway, I um, it's like I've written it. I had done it with samples and used it as a demo. And then I'd also got some money together and recorded it here in LA with some some incredible players at the Warner Brothers studio. It was just sort of a, a rare opportunity that I could afford to do it at this what is for for the people in the room is a very cheap rate, but for me it was a lot of money. But I'm like, all right, this is a push. I'm, I'm making a push here in my career, so I'm gonna I'm gonna drop some money, hire these people, have them record this piece, and then I like orchestra. I wrote it, orchestrated it, made the parts, and then you know they played it and they played it great, and and it came out phenomenal, right? Um, and then a couple years later, uh, I I don't even know how this opportunity came up, but I, there's a there's a, a conductor and orchestrator and composer here in L.A. who's pretty well known his name is Tim Davies and he's um he's a drop the hammer kind of guy uh I, I don't know him personally but I've seen him talk and I know people that have worked for him and he's just very he has very high standards and he works on the biggest projects in town so he kind of just doesn't have time for you know coddling anyone but he had opened himself up to like send me a score and I will kind of review it and give you some notes on it right so I was like all right well I'm proud of this one I think it's pretty well done I sent it to him and he sent it back you know, to me with like red pencil all over it. Right. And this is something that I had, that I have a recording of that I love that is beautiful and that people have told me is good. And I've sent it out for demos and here's this guy being like, nah, here, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. A lot of that was not so much about the composition. Uh, some of it was, it was more about the, the presentation of the score, um, and how to get the most out of the music. Uh, but, but still it was that same idea where I'm like, I know this is good. And yet here's somebody at a higher level than me professionally telling me it could be better. Right. And that's, that's healthy. I, I think, um, and he, yeah. it, it wasn't him yelling at me, uh, you know, or anything like that. It wasn't overly negative, but like when you see that score come back and you sort of click open the PDF and you, all you just see is red marks everywhere. You're like, Oh shit. You know? Um, <laughs> but that's, that's a learn to me. That was a learning, a valuable learning moment rather than something discouraging. Um, so, you know, 
advice about that, I would say carefully seek out criticism. Don't get too defensive, but maybe don't take it, you know, completely to heart and 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 see how you can turn something negative, even if it's only mildly negative, into into something positive. Because we can all get better. Music is a lifetime uh, learning um, opportunity, and no one is is no one has mastered it ever. Uh, so yeah, so be open to be open to healthy levels of criticism if it's going to make you better. Where can people follow you? How can people keep up to date on projects you're working on, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, easiest, I guess, is my website, uh, which I think has links to all my social media stuff, but um, it's mclaindeemer.com. I have an extremely easy name to Google because if there's another McLean Deemer on this planet, I would love to meet that person. Um, I'm pretty sure there isn't. So yeah, it's uh, M-A-C-L-A-I-N-E-D-I-E-M-E-R.com. Um, and if you Google that, you can probably find links to everything else. I'm on Twitter at that handle for however long that exists. <laughs> for, yeah, uh, the time being. Yeah, and I'm on Instagram at McLean Deemer Music, which I'm trying to get better at. Um, making that type of content is a whole other job that I feel like I don't have time for, but uh, but I do enjoy it. So those are probably the primary places to find me. Um, and uh, if Twitter goes away, then I'll pop up somewhere else like a little little whack-a-mole. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to go back and listen and check things out that you mentioned. And this was really great. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 